Welcome to Journeys in Podcasting, the first summer edition. Okay, so our podcast today is going to be about models and simulations, both physical uh, miming, acting, and then digital Minecraft as well. We're going to start with, uh, well, the image you're looking at right now on the screen is a long time ago uh, as an ESL teacher, I got into using simulations just as a way of ki getting kids to act out knowledge they may have but not be able to express linguistically. And they would actually act out, in this case, the human ear, where 12 kids would stand up and they would each have different roles to play of how the inter-ear interacted as a complex system uh, with all of its parts and complexities. Um, now we're going to shift really quickly to the image you're looking at now is a, a prototype project that kids did when they visited um, our school garden uh, right after a hailstorm where the roof was destroyed and they prototyped uh, a gutter system after observing gutters all over campus, studying what gutters do, uh, watching how they you know, moved water from the top of the campus to the top of the mountain to the bottom. And then they went and just makeshiftly over a couple of mornings designed this gutter system just using cut up Coke bottles and they brought it into the cafeteria to test out so that we used whatever time we could find with the kids and so I'm on cafeteria duty and I would just grab some of them, we'd tape some of these together and then try it out and then took it out to the garden to try it out as well to simulate what would a water collection system look like and then hopefully next year we're getting a, a garden project based per person who will be stationed in the garden coordinate these kind of projects and I think that one of the first things she wants to do is have the kids come in and run construction projects in the garden to get it set up. In Ms. Natasha Peterson's class, her students uh, were studying body systems. And so what they did was created their own fantastic voyage-like activity where they had to bust a myth about the human body. They had to plan a venture into the human body and um, discover whether their myth would be, would be busted or not. And what they had done was had some immersion, they had some dri a driving question for their study, they knew what they wanted to go after, they had interviewed a professional, video conferenced with a, a, real doc a real local doctor connected to the community, and then transcribed the interview and then continued their inquiry from there. So they'd already done quite a bit of research up to this point, but when they got to the storyboard mode, something happened where they got in this need-to-know situation where if they didn't know how to create the storyboard about going into their body system, then that would send them off with another inquiry and in, in going off and doing more research. And so what happened was some of the groups just went wild on the research. They really took control of their own learning and they were working from kind of their own prompt. We weren't really, they weren't guided by rubrics at that point. They were just going off and studying on their own. So what we'll look at here is a couple of different um, of their final videos that, you know, after their storyboard, they had a co-creation they made with a teacher. They had to create or come up with all the multimedia, the backdrops, how they're going to interact with it. And they're following this collective storyboard that after making their individual storyboards in their group, they had to come up with one collective storyboard for their movie project. So let's look at a couple of these final products. And then we're going to listen to an interview with one of the students that we will call Anonymous V. Uh, her group in particular went and did an incredible study of the immune system and she'll guide us through what some of her reasoning was for taking off, taking her learning into her own hands. 
Our journey begins. We are entering Vashnavi's human body. We are now in the large intestine, the sesum, the colon, and the rectum. Mari, please stop narrating. And who are you talking to anyway? We see some interesting involuntary muscle movements, called peristalsis, in the same expanding and contracting that we saw from the esophagus and the small intestine. Here it is, moving the feces through the large intestine. Look, flying stool! Seriously, stop narrating. Are you crazy? Look, Bashnavi has been eating turmeric roots, cardamom, coriander, curry leaves, and cumin. The salts and fluids in her sesamon are absorbing the nutrients and passing the indigestible parts to the colon. Wow, there sure are a lot of indigestible parts in curry condiments. It's a good thing that bacteria in the colon are forming the excrement and all this mucus is pushing it along with the help of peristalsis. The average American creates stool two times a day. It looks like Vajnabi is about to make her third bowel movement today. She's an ejectamenta machine. We're ahead of schedule. The stool you are exposing is usually what you ate the day before. Your bowel movements depend on the food you eat. We can't get out of this stool. Oh no, what are we going to do? We'll have to become part of it. All for poop and poop for all. Hold on, we're ejecting. I think I have an idea. Let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what you're going to smell. Let the smell raise on. The smell never bothered me anyways. Let it go is working. How did you even get in there? Long story. There's the bloodstream. Isa, Valeria, you guys can go see if the cell phone radio waves are affecting cell growth. Check for any cancerogenous growth. You know, cell mutations. Sir, we have found brain tissue in the cerebrum, and I cannot find any evidence of cell mutation or of any unusual growth. Wafi, be careful. There's an army of white blood cells coming to exterminate us. We're trapped inside a white blood cell membrane. What type of white blood cell is that? Is it a neutrophil, basophil, or a monophil? It's a trap! You have to imagine me with a giant squid head. Graham. Who cares what it is? Choppy, blow the C4 fuse. Cover your ears. So, Vale, we are forging bodies inside a human body. Are we in danger from the immune system? There's lots of dangers, but I think our main threats are the macrophages, neutrophils, natural killer cells, dendritic cells, memory T cells, or memory B cells. Once they locate us, they communicate our location and send an army after us. They also mark and disable enemies and remember enemies if they run into them again. The neutrophil cell can also activate the sleeping cells. Over a thousand in just one lymph node. The lymph nodes are all over the body, but you know all this, right, Isa? Yeah, I just like to hear you talk. I know memory T cells or memory B cells recognize enemies and throw antibodies at them. When neutrophils fight for too long, they call backup. Once the enemy has been disabled, they activate themselves so their toxins won't kill healthy cells. 
This is the coolest thing to think of. Inside me, I have an army that fights to save me. They are like my little sons. How did I get a thousand million sons? To kill themselves for little old me. Ring, 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 ring. What is it? We didn't find any cancer or cell growth, but we did get attacked by white blood cells. Their messenger proteins are onto our location. Abort mission. I repeat, abort. Dear Duck, rendezvous in five. Roger. So I'm here in the library with a student we're going to call the Anonymous V. And she's going to talk to us a little bit about creating simulations for going into the human body. We're going to start with this example, actually, of another student. This was a student who, um, when they got to their research, they had to create a storyboard for how they're going to kind of recreate the movie um, Fantastic Journey. Is that what it's called? Fantastic Voyage. Fantastic Voyage, where they go into the human body to save the scientist who's in there. And so I saw that this student, we'll call him the Anonymous A, the Anonymous A, when he got to this point, he went and really cranked up his research that he went back and forth between creating the simulation and then he would find that he didn't know things, so he would go and look them up, and I guess that's what real research is. When you need to know something, you go, you go find out. So let's look at Valeria's now. We'll change gears a little bit here, and we want to go to the second slide, and she's going to talk a little bit about what happened when she got to the storyboard. Um, well, when I got to my storyboard, we didn't have that much information, and we wanted to make a really fun video. And we needed to know a little bit more about uh, the immune system. So one night I went in and I looked in videos and I also researched with uh, certain articles. And then there was this really cool article that told me about the cells and uh, how their functions work in like, in like really cool ways. So, I noticed here, for example, you made all of these cards. I think you even showed me a YouTube video that you went and found that took you into like the 21 different kind of red blood cells. Is that right? Red blood cells, no. Cells in general. I mean, the, the white immune blood cells, cells in, the, yeah. in the immune system. You want to talk about some of the interesting facts you found out about okay. the immune system? Well, first, I thought that white blood cells were only one type of cell. But when I got deep into my research... I noticed they're like, it's a group, it's a whole group of, of lots of them. Um, one cell that I really got into, because I thought it was really cool, was the microphage, which is a really big, it's, it's the biggest cell of the immune system, and it's about 21 micrometers, and uh, it it has different jobs. Every cell has different jobs. So for this one, it kills enemies, it communicates, it gives direct instructions, and it can make it in the, it can make the your cut or when you get hurt, it can make it inflammate. Like yeah, I, and I remember you guys talking about how white blood cells can be suicidal. Can you yeah. can you tell me about how that? That works? was really cool. It it's something that. Well, cells, they need to work a lot. And the bone marrow makes lots of, lots of, lots of cells. But uh, when the cell finished its job and it's tired and it, has, and it has used all of its proteins and vitamins it has, and it has fight it a lot and lots for five, for five to seven hours, to be exact, it uh, auto-destructs itself. 
it like kills suciates and kills itself and so it it won't damage other cells because wow. when they do too much when they when they release too much toxins to kill the bacteria in the process they kill other other cells like this one that's the natural killer cell this one over here it it suicides itself because in the process it kills other cells so so no much cells are killed it kills itself. so anonymous v i noticed that this is something that your teachers didn't even design. They had no idea that you were going to go and learn so much about the immune system and the white blood cells and all the different ways they behave and interact with each other. How does it feel as a student to do something that wasn't really prompted or told by your teachers? You just went and did it by yourself. Well, it feels really cool because then you just suddenly know all of this stuff that you didn't know before and things that you didn't even imagine. Like, um, some cells are different and how they work and how they function. It's really cool because you didn't know that before. And well, in my research, I just had to know something because we had to put information in there because we needed to know how the cells worked so we can figure out how it fights against the cancer because our myth was uh, the cell phone waves give you cancer and we had to check how do cell phone waves damage cells and that stuff. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Okay. Anonymous V. Thank you. So in the next section, uh, we're going to be looking at projects where the students were studying uh, Roman cats. And this project was kind of laid out and it, it followed a certain flow where the kids did uh, start by studying their symbols or the symbols of each of their gods, some Roman gods. And then that symbol uh, would lead them into the, what the story of their god would be and what was the whole uh, mythology around them and how where the gods came from, where how everything happened. And then by looking at their stories then they would find something unexplainable like Zeus and the thunder and what that explains for uh, people in Rome and then after that that would lead them into the archetype worshippers. The second part of the study was to take uh, the same template that they studied in the modern gods, the symbol of the stories, the unexplainable event, the archetype, and work it backwards but for modern times. So they had to start with a real social issue in the world and they had to design this archetype person that would be having a problem with that issue and then they would have to design a god around that issue. So part of it was the kids had to act out or build these um, simulation scenarios of the archetype worshippers. So we're going to play one real quickly. This one comes from the archetype worshipper of a Roman god, Orcus, and the student has to, on campus, act out what the archetype worshipper would be doing. And so they had studied that the archetype worshipper of Orcus would pound the earth to um, summon Orcus, and then as Orcus appears, they had to avert their eyes and not look at him because you couldn't look at the the god Orcus, and there were some other gruesome details about having to slaughter a black-haired animal, a sheep, or something like that. Um, well, let's take a look and see see what they did. No, human. You have been an awful worshipper. You have broken a lot of oaths throughout your life. This is the first sacrifice you have ever made to me, and you never visit my temple, so you must be punished severely. You will have your afterlife in Tartarus after you die. You will be beside Sisyphus 
pushing the boulder up the hill or besides Santalu not being able to get the fruit in the trees or the water from the river. Now go away, old breaker. Okay, so next up we're going to be talking about our elementary school media room and how simula simulations came into play for helping us design and come up with ideas of what a, an innovation room that would foster like innovative learning and collaboration would look like. We got thinking on these ideas starting by just reading a book called The Third Teacher and then another book out of the d-school called Make Space and then I was with another teacher at a, at a, a GAFE conference in Raleigh and we heard about this Hunt Library so we spent an afternoon at the Hunt Library and then on a road trip the following summer I went and spent a couple of afternoons in the Hunt Library just observing how people interacted with the space and we got really interested in this idea of designing these collaborative spaces back at our campus. So we have a global classroom that's almost fully constructed. or It's constructed, but uh, we're still getting some of the technical pieces working. And then in the elementary school, we're designing a kind of lower tech version of it. We're just putting a couple of projectors up. Uh, and we'll start playing around with interactive spaces such as just Google Docs, Murally, VoiceThread, anything that gives us kind of a collaborative workspace to work synchronously in the room and asynchronously in between sessions. And so here is a render of a SketchUp we created just to kind of start thinking about what this would look like in the redesign of one of our rooms in the, in the IMC library. Captain's Log Supplemental. The ES Media Innovation Studio, where students explore and broaden their concept of literacy, deciphering and creating symbolic forms across different levels of perception. Fascinating. Don't underestimate the force. Make it so. Where students experience radical collaboration using the digital tools that will define their generation. Chicago Enterprise, energize. Where students project out into the world through digital mural landscapes and bring the world to them via video conferencing. Where the process of creation, collaboratively or encapsulated alone, becomes transparent. Four phases locked and ready to fire. Where thinking, creation, problems and solutions become visible. Analysis complete. All systems have been alerted to your presence, sir. Where student works of excellence become a digital museum, alive, an auditory, visual, interactive experience. Your illogical approach to chess does have its advantages on occasion, Captain. I prefer to call it inspired. As you wish. At any rate, the game is yours. Where we learn by immersion. Uh, it, it's it's really interesting to have these conversations because while I'm doing something completely different on the surface, I think underneath we're doing exactly the same thing. Uh, and we are now in the second year of our one-to-one -one program, a bring-your-own-laptop program. And when we started it, I had the opportunity to teach Latin 1A, our introductory Latin course, that I'd never taught before. And in doing so, I remade the curriculum around uh, a gamified model where we move through levels that have some sort of cultural component, uh, complementing the grammatical component. And 
you guys talked about empathy, you talked about uh, projects that have some direct relevance to the kids, and that's exactly what we're doing in our Latin program now. So for example, at the beginning of the year, we learned some basics about how the language works, and then we talked about Roman geography to get a, a context for where the Romans actually lived and how far spread out they were all over Europe. So kids had to do some research on uh, ancient cities and try to get a sense of what they looked like and how many people lived there. And then in our second module, uh, we looked at Roman daily life and what Romans would have, how, how Romans would have interacted with each other. And in that project, we ended up building a, an infographic in which I challenged the kids to imagine yourself as you would have lived 2,000 years ago. And you, you can get as creative as you want. You can, be, uh, you can be the emperor of Rome, or you can be a slave, you can be anything in between. And then build your infographic and tell your story of who you are. And then share it with each other to start building a community. So maybe, uh, and we don't do group work by the way, but we're doing collaborative work at the same time. So maybe you are a slave who works for the kid sitting next to you who is your, your master, who then works along with the guy sitting next to him who runs a bake shop, who uh, ultimately is trying to persuade the, the governor who sits in the back row that, that they need to help out with the bake shop, something like that. And so you, we start creating uh, something like an ancient community within our class that builds with each successive module. Uh, a couple of units ago we looked at engineering and architecture and the project which we built for that was uh, basically Minecraft structures. So, so if you were a, a slave, well maybe you reconstruct the house that you would have lived in and worked in. What does it look like? You know, why, why, why are these certain features here but not in another villa or house? And whereas in the second project we were thinking about how we interact with people, in this project we thought about how we interacted with physical space. And we keep progressing uh, with this model in mind so that by the end of the year after we go through eight modules, I hope that kids have a, have a more intuitive grasp on what Roman people were really like. So it's, it's not just the art and the literature, which we, of course we really care about, but it's the people themselves. So in other words, we're trying to build empathy for the Romans using the available tools we have because we can't go back and see what they were really like. To create the tools that they had in there. Yeah, so in, in a way we're, we're working toward classical investigation, which is what the field is all about, but we're doing it from a more human-centered model in which design plays a very key role. And while, while the design process is in, in full swing, when we're designing projects, what I'm really trying to get at ultimately in my Latin course is uh, the discovery phase, that initial phase where you, you have a culture that lived 2,000 years ago that was very different from you in a lot of ways. How do you get to know them? How do you build empathy for them? How do you understand what drove a Roman to think and act the way they did? And the, the discovery phase for me is the most important thing that we do in, in language study and it goes hand in hand with uh, the idea of cultural fluency. That's something that's really big in our department right now. Mosh, you're working across so many different levels of design, because I'm actually hearing like the design of the space itself, and I'm thinking like that's what an archaeologist would be doing as they're excavating, is just in the very spaces, tools, how do these people and the intent of the original architect of design that space, who's designing it for a certain kind of culture and lifestyle, there's a serious level right there. So you're putting them in the perspective of being the designer, but you're also putting them in the perspective of 
the archaeologist and the original architect. I mean, there's so many different sort yeah. of levels of there. Yeah, and, and who were you uh, in the first place to want that kind of a space? And who am I? <laughs> that recording was with Moss Pike and a group of design thinkers that were at South by Southwest. We met for coffee at the Driscoll and just started coming up with topics and themes. I had Twitter known all of these people for a while. I'd met a couple of them at conferences, but it's pretty funny when you walk into a room and you literally know everyone's ideas before they even open their mouths. That was kind of how we got started. We wrote out some notes on a napkin and then we just started talking about it. One of the issues that, or one of the topics that Moss Pike spoke to was the use of Minecraft as a simulation. And so we took those ideas and we, we went back to school and we started looking at how, how we could do the same thing. Uh, we brought kids in to actually show us what they knew about Minecraft and it was pretty extensive. I mean, they were setting up servers and everything and they explained the differences between using it on the PC and then using it on the iPads. And so our first experiments were actually on the iPad just to keep it simple, all on the same network. So they didn't have the 24-7 access um, and we gave them some pretty specific challenges. So it was very teacher-directed. But we were blown away by the results, by the bridging this back and forth between their content and their research and having a purpose for that research and a need to know and come go back and find find more. In in one scenario we'll be looking at how they studied the Muisca culture. Um, they went to the Gold Museum, studied a artifact a Muisca artifact, and then were told they had to tell the story through the voice of the Muisca artifact. For example, I wasn't always here behind glass. I was once uh, in, you know incredibly important in my village and then they started giving the tour of their village. And then in the other classes, what, what did you guys do? Yeah, if you, if you think about it, Chris, that need-to-know kind of moment that really was driving their, their inquiry. Um, after that, we were, uh, like you just said it, we had to bring some kids in to teach us how to, you know, use the basics of Minecraft and setting up servers and all that stuff. So we kept on playing with it and Miss Natty's class actually worked on it from the Wadu village point of view, which uh, is an, an ancient indigenous village uh, here in the coast in Colombia. Uh, so what we did was set up a challenge for them and we said, okay, we're going to go ahead and study this culture and they found out different problems that they have, that people living in those small villages have every day. And they came up with uh, water problems, for example, and how um, getting access to water that could be consumable would, was too hard. So they went then back and forth between Minecraft and you know researching in the library and everything else and they were trying to come up with a solution for that on Minecraft. So they kind of recreated that village in Minecraft proposing what according to the kids would be a creative solution for, that, for those kind of problems that they found. Yeah. And just this being our first time, I think by trial and error, we learned a ton, like things that we'll definitely do differently next time, which parts to leave open, uh, where to tighten in those, those prototype loops so kids can screencast some of the images from what they're working on and then get feedback from the group. But the possibilities seem just extensive. Let's, let's listen to some of the, the scripts that the students wrote um, for their video tours of their Muisca Minecraft villages. I began as wax from bees. My Muisca creator formed me into wax shapes, then covered me with clay, leave, leaving a small hole. 
After cooking me, he poured the wax out in a crucible. He heated the gold to turning it into liquid before putting the gold inside the clay. He waited for the temperature to cool. He grabbed a hammer and broke the clay. I was created and then bathed. My owners lived in a big house with their families. They had carpets to sit on and share stories and legends of their ancestors. They ate corn, fruit, and beans. The owner of this house was a cacique. Before he was cacique, he couldn't go out of his cave for six years during the day, only at night. My people lived in these small houses with small doors and small windows. They had no furniture. They told stories about their gods, Bachue, Bagwe, Bochica, and Chipchachua. The market is a place where my people trade for, for things like salt, corn, emeralds, wood, and things that could have made me like bees, wax, and gold. They did not use money. They traded in a barter system. My people were intelligent, so they planted food by terrace farming, planting food in stairs or steps. They farmed on a mountain and worked for days and days just for food. That food was taken to the market and traded with other tribes or muiscas. My great intelligent people were so good to their gods, they created a temple for Sue in Sugamuxi, what two conquistadores call Sugamoso. Sue, our sun god, gave us everything, and that is why we made a temple for him. On June 21st, the summer solstice, the sake, descendant from the sun, showed his face. The Iraka, the head priest, would also be there. My people offered presents for Sue. My people also built a moon temple for Chia the goddess. The Zipa descendants of Chia would be one of the only ones to enter the moon temple. Let me tell you about the genius of my scientists. They built a sundial to know when to farm. And when is the sun celebration? On the 21st of June, when the sun is longer on the sky. The Spaniards called the awesome solar calendar Infernito. It had 25 rocks to know the time of year. Only our people, the Muisca, knew how to read it. My people would melt gold into shapes and throw them into the lagoon of Guatavita. They believed that that way their presence would go through a different universe and reach the sun gods through a portal. The cacique, covered in gold dust, dove from a raft into the laguna. That's how the cacique got picked. 
My people traded copper emeralds and coal for gold from the Tirana. They got these minerals from mines. My people dipped pots into the salt river and put them onto fire so the water could evaporate. When the water evaporated, they broke the pots and hard salt. Witaka and Chipchakun created a flood. Bochica heard the Muiscas complain about their farms being destroyed. Bochica broke a rock in two and created a waterfall with a rainbow. Huitaka was punished by turning into an owl and having to hold up the sky. Chipchakum had to hold up the earth. When his shoulder gets tired, he turns and causes an earthquake. In the beginning, Batre came out of the Laguna Iguaque with a child. The child grew up and became her husband. Bachwe taught their children how to hunt, farm, and respect the gods. When they became old, they went back into the laguna and turned into two serpents. After Bochica broke the rock and formed the Salto de Tequendama, a beautiful rainbow was formed that you conquistadores can see, still see today. But hold your nose, because it smells pretty bad. Huitaka was a great, beautiful, but bad woman. After she was turned into an owl, she lived in a special tree. So, as we were trying to get set up with all these Minecraft projects of our own in our own school, we were looking forward to learn the basics of Minecraft and, of course, know how people around the world, all the teachers and other innovators were using Minecraft in different ways around schools in the world. Yeah, I talked about how I came into contact with these design thinkers and Moss Pike through the DTK12 chat, and by keeping up with them, um, knowing sort of from their blogs, you know, from the chats, what they think about, what they talk about, and you know, we were just laughing about how this is opening up all kind of other avenues and networks as well. I happened to tweet to a guy about, I saw him tweeting about some cool stuff he was doing with Minecraft, and he said, well, I'm actually not the specialist, why don't you talk to this guy, Matt Richards, who just took on this dream position in New Zealand, where he is director of the Mind Lab. And so I, I wrote Matt, and literally he wrote right back within the hour, and uh, we hooked up an interview for a couple days later, and... I hope he's not mad at us because what was supposed to be a 20-minute interview turned into like a 50-minute interview. We kept him up, I think, past midnight. So thank you, Matt, for that. Uh, let's go to his yeah, interview Yeah, shout now. out for Matt. Follow Matt Richards on Twitter. Let's go to his interview now and uh, hear how he's going to tell us to knock down all the walls in our classrooms. Okay, I think we're live now. I'm Chris Davis. This is Journeys in Podcasting, and we're going to be talking to Matt Richards, the director of the Mind Lab in Wellington, New Zealand. So I think he's about to go to bed over there, and we're just getting up for breakfast over here. <laughs> uh, also online is uh, Diego. Uh, he's our um, tech coordinator. I mean, tech. Uh, I almost called you tech director. He's, he's almost our tech director. He's I'll our. I'll take uh, that. <laughs> I'll take that. Hi, Chris. Yeah, I'm Diego. I'm technology teacher for uh, elementary. Uh, awesome to be with you guys today. I'm just just getting ready, like you said, cooking breakfast in here. But all right, well, we'll go ahead and let Matt introduce himself real fast. Um, hi, Chris. Hi, Diego. Hi, anyone watching this. Um, I'm Matt Richards. I'm uh, currently the 
director of the Mind Lab in Wellington, uh, New Zealand. Um, previous to that, I was uh, working in Australia. I was the director of EdTech and Innovation in um, uh, an independent K-12 school. I was there for about three years. Um, I suppose I should start with my history there because it kind of leads into what I'm doing now. Um, I've been in education for about seven or eight years. Um, that was a, a conscious choice to kind of work in a, an area where I felt like you could make a difference. Um, and I was a bit of a geek um, to start with, so I, I naturally kind of fell into the e-learning uh, area. And um, in my last school, I set up the, um, the first permanent K-12 makerspace in Australian schools. And um, that was kind of awesome. Uh, it still is. It's still running. Um, it's run by a group of students called Tech Ninjas, um, which is a whole other story we could talk about at some point. Um, the, uh, the coverage that we got for the Makerspace uh, led to a few other cool things, like um, uh, I've got some students in the school this year during Science Week doing experiments on the International Space Station, um, their own experiments. Um, they're going to send up tadpoles to the ISS and watch them turn into space frogs, which is kind of cool. Um, and, um, and we worked on some pretty awesome projects like uh, Open ROV, um, building underwater exploration robots, um, learning how to hack those with the Oculus Rift so that you can um, explore a shipwreck in real time. This uh, school I was working at in Australia was in Port Macquarie, uh, which is this awesome, um, beautiful place on the east coast of Australia. And there's actually some shipwrecks off the coast there. So, so the kids not only build a robot, and it's open source, so you, you get the instructions and they're all off the shelf bits, and we made that in the makerspace. But they, um, they're exploring shipwrecks in real time with VR, which is kind of awesome. So that was kind of what I was doing in Australia. And then um, uh, I ended up taking this role over here, which is um, the Mind Lab. So the Mind Lab is uh, um, a startup. Well, it's not really a startup anymore, I suppose, because it's scaled rapidly. So about 18 months ago, it started in Auckland in New Zealand. And it started as a, a, a disruptive um, organization, a way of providing uh, experiential hands-on um, ed tech and science um, learning experiences for students um, in a sort of a cool, um, uh, it's not really a maker space, but a, a lab, a learning lab. Uh, and so that was so successful in Auckland that now they've got um, centers in um, Gisborne here in Wellington, and they've just opened one in Christchurch. Uh, and plans for elsewhere. So now I run this centre, the one in Wellington, and um, as well as doing stuff for kids, so we have we have school groups coming through um, during term time. We also run holiday programs, uh, but we also teach a postgraduate course in um, digital and collaborative learning uh, for teachers. Um, the aim of this being that um, this cool kind of uh, innovative. Um, and disruptive technologies that we're using, the teachers can take those back into their learning environments and help change things. 
So the goal, really, of the Mind Lab is to um, to change education, um, and starting with New Zealand, and and it seems to be actually working. It's kind of scarily cool how successful the Mind Lab is at the moment. Uh, but like I said um, before, Chris, I'm I'm only four weeks in at the moment, so I'm finding my feet, and um, the weather here is is really different to Australia. Um, they call it windy Wellington. It's like extremely windy, and it rains a lot, and um, it's it's almost it's like Melbourne in Australia. If anyone's watching this knows what Melbourne in Australia is like, it's like uh, gets cold, a lot of coffee, uh, good culture. It's kind of like that. Um, so I like it. The culture and the people here are really nice. Um, and yeah, I moved my wife and kids over, and now we're Wellingtonians. Cool. Well, you touched on a couple of things that we're very interested in, and, and one is this creating this lab experience. Um, it sounds a lot like the, the Fab Labs that have popped up around the States, uh, Paolo Blickstein's projects out of, out of, out of Stanford. Um, and, uh, well, a couple of things. One is I, I was on the DTK12 chat last night talking to some of the design thinker, project-based learning people, and two people that mentioned things that remind me of this as well as Lisa Palmieri and, and Mary Cantwell out of the Mount Vernon School in Atlanta. And one of the things they seem to have designed pretty well is in this process of, of design, um, they have a lot of like reflection at the end. So they were talking about social action learning projects and how they, they judge success. And so like within your lab and collaborative environment, um, how do you walk the kids through that? So like how do they know they've been successful in a project? Um, and then we'll I'll ask you some questions about like the bridging over into other academic areas as well. But sort of like in your um, project design, do you use a certain model? Um, and then especially in kind of the, the feedback and the evaluation part, how do you run that? Especially that, Chris, uh, Matt, I'm going to jump in here for a minute. Because I was reading in your blog the other day, you uh, had some posts about open uh, badging systems. So especially that, like the whole feedback part, and how do kids evaluate the projects, and how do you evaluate, evaluate them? And how successful they were. Yeah, these are these are really um, interesting and dense questions. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think I'll I'll start by saying um, uh, one of my main goals in what I do with the student-centric um, learning environments that I've been setting up is. Um, to challenge these entrenched paradigms that we have in education of um, what success is and avoiding failure. And so I think that um, there's these learning activities that are structured around this whole goal of success. And life isn't like that. Life is a series of failures. And I think that the more real we want learning to be, the more we have to embrace failure. So. I like that acronym of first attempt in learning as fail. So when we have kids working in the makerspace or in the mind lab, um, we, we want it to be an experiential um, process of the kids learning by failing and having a crack at something and then reassessing what they've done, but then also teaching each other. So a, a core component of this model is the learning uh, or the structure is the learning community. 
So in, in K-12 education, it's very, historically it's been very teacher-centric. And so once you start bringing in models and, um, and structures, uh, it just reaffirms that teacher-centric learning process. Um, so I'm trying to avoid those at the moment. I'm, I'm actually, particularly with mind class, when we get onto mind class, and, and it is an experiment that's to be noted, um, but it depends on what you um, what your what your focus is for the project. So, so I wouldn't say there was a generic success criteria that we give our kids. What we would say is um, that they'd like to have a go. If we wanted to be looking at the 21st century core competencies, obviously we'd be looking at uh, collaborative skills. Um, uh, we might unpack what innovation is. Um, uh, communication, so so um, web-based projects, working with numerous people uh, effectively. Uh, these are the kind of things I think you could look across multiple projects. But in any individual project, obviously, there's going to be set things that would determine whether it was successful or not, i.e., mm -hmm. does the open ROV drone float or does it sink to the bottom of the ocean and it's gone? Uh, do the tadpoles um, become frogs or do they die on liftoff? I think that's the kind of uh, real-world success criteria that we want to embed in our learning experiences. Um, we want learning to be real. And so I think just like in the real world, um, you, you get the job or you don't, or you... You you know you meet that person or you don't. Um, I think that's the kind of learning experiences we want, we want to have in these new collaborative learning commons. Collaborative learning commons. I haven't heard that term, but it sounds a lot like Sugata Mitra's uh, Soul Projects, the student organized learning environments. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of his um, of, of his work and of his model. Although we never actually tried it, I was going to try his model at one point, but. Um, we couldn't kind of really figure out the grandmas, the, the net nannies that kind of beamed in um, to um, help the students out. But I was, I'm super interested in that model, actually. Mm. Um, well, it seems to have elements of that. And I'm thinking of like our first Minecraft project that we, we just tried out. And this, I think, has to do a lot more with kind of this, this collaborative culture around the gaming. And um, as we started our project, we invited the kids to come in and just play Minecrafts. We didn't know a whole lot about it. We've seen it, tinkered around with it. Um, but really just to watch how they interact, to see what yeah. kind of culture they had already developed within it, to watch how they collaborated, how much self-organization was taking place. So it was more like yeah. a cultural study of how they interrelate with the game and how we yeah. can use this interactive gaming space in the classroom. Um, yeah. What do you feel about like the what you observe the skill sets that are are, are brought in with that what the kids bring in from their gaming experiences or from their tinkering experiences? Um, how do you observe that and how do you kind of appropriate that for your purposes in the lab? Yeah, this is another um, really good question and it touches on quite a few things. So. Um, I suppose I should give you a little bit of a history about me with Minecraft and um, 
and maybe that'll give you a sense of my motivations with this current project. And and by no means do I think this is like the ultimate, but this is just the latest evolution of what we're doing with Minecraft. Um, I've been using Minecraft for quite a few years now. Um, at the school I was teaching at in Australia, we had a, a connection with a school in Melbourne. I was in Melbourne for seven years before I moved to Port Macquarie. And I had a colleague down there in Melbourne who, he's sort of like my partner in crime with a lot of this stuff that we sort of set up. And so we had a link between our two schools and the students were collaborating in this shared server and we were setting some tasks for them like, um, okay guys, we want you to work together to design your ultimate school. Okay, or actually, at first it was we want you to replicate your current schools to scale in Minecraft. Okay, which was which was good. It brought in mathematics and geography and a few other things, um, and then that evolved to build your ultimate school and do that collaboratively. And then to 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 make this even more effective, we decided every Friday we'd have a, a hangout where the kids could meet face-to-face -face and have a chat. So as well as being in-world with their avatars and communicating in that way, that hyper-communication style that's happening in there, they're also seeing each other face-to-face -face like we are now. Um, and we did that as a bit of an experiment to see how that would affect the community, if it would actually enhance the community or disrupt it. Um, and it was, kind of, it was kind of awesome, actually, and the kids have been doing some amazing stuff. That's still going, actually, that project. It's a, a different server that's still running. And that was primary school kids, so that was, you know, um, 10 to 12-year-olds. Um, so then what happened was I, um, I was at uh, Microsoft in Sydney. Um, I was there because they brought me in as one of their innovative educator experts. Um, uh, and... I was talking to some guys from across Australia and New Zealand, and we were thinking about um, our innovation projects, as they called them, right? Things that could really change education. And um, one of the projects, uh, one of the, the uh, products that Microsoft had just recently acquired was Minecraft. And so I had this kind of secret agenda um, to try and not let Microsoft fuck up Minecraft and monetize it too much and um, and control it too much because what I liked about Minecraft was that it was pretty it was still really open source and and the kids could co-create with it so I'll get into that in a, in a second so I met these other guys and said hey guys let's um, let's take this um, sort of international um, and let's set up a server and um, but this time, um, rather than it being sort of teacher structured, uh, and something you should be aware of as well, the previous project was Minecraft EDU, which is quite teacher centric. It's um, we can talk more about that later. But I said let's just use let's just use the standard Minecraft, um, and let's let the kids uh, direct this. Let let's make this really student centric. So the history to this is. Some of the amazing things I see kids doing in Minecraft, uh, the, the higher order computational thinking stuff that they do, the coding that they do, is they'll see a need for something and then they'll, they'll, 
they'll script it, they'll code it in JavaScript. Okay, so we had uh, an issue happening in the early server which was griefing. Okay, so if you don't know what griefing is, it's um, you, you, you know, right. So the kids who were causing grief and they wanted a way to, to sort of fix that. And so a student who was, I think he was in year four actually at the time, so he's quite young. Um, Coded a plugin to do to to stop people griefing, and it would come up with a sign that says it boot you off server, and it'd say griefing's not nice, come back later. <laughs> and I just thought that's amazing. Like this is a student who's the student who's informing their their virtual world with these structures, and so it kind of gave me this idea of um, let's see how far we can go with this. Let's see. If we if we literally give the keys to the kingdom to the kids, what can be created and what is the role of teacher? So what I noticed was a lot of these Microsoft teachers when they went in, like all of us, for the first time, we dig ourselves into a hole and we can't get out, right? Much to the joy of the of the Minecraft kids that are around us, okay? Because they know how to get out of the hole. So um, I thought, you know, when as educators, there's this old way of thinking that is to use something, we have to be experts in it before we utilize it with our students. And I, I think we, I, Mind Class it contests that. It says that we don't have to be Minecraft experts to utilize it as a learning platform. We don't have to be gamers. Um, what is our role? And so, like I touched on before, I think it's um, setting maybe challenges or suggestions, um, helping network with other schools, um, uh, motivation maybe if it's needed, but I don't, that hasn't been needed, um, and being facilitators. I'm coming up with a lot of the buzzwords. You have to. Forgive me for that, but facilitators of the 21st century competencies of the modern learning competencies. So, facilitating a global project, um, which is the world these guys are going into, mm -hmm. they're in. Um, so, communication, collaboration, networking. These are things that, as educators, we we're good at. Well, the the modern educators are anyway. So, so they're the things that we could help with. And then the students teach the teachers how to how to use Minecraft. So that was the inversion of the learning kind of structure. Um, so that was that was the that was where I was coming from with my class. As well as that, I had um, friends, even um, colleagues, that were running Minecraft camps, and and I just I saw so many people out there kind of cashing in on Minecraft, and it, it really pissed me off. And I was thinking that this is something that's, well, it's not free, but it's cheap. The entry level for this is quite low. And um, and once, you, once you've once you bought it and you've got your platform, you can build your own things and make your own skins and create your own plugins. It's this creative universe that we shouldn't milk, you know. I think that um, there's, a, there's a real sense with a lot of educators that they want to structure the hell out of things and... and um, and I, from talking to the students, um, it's kind of, it, it's uh, if it's done the wrong way, it kind of it's a sort of almost like a mutation of what Minecraft is, which I don't think anyone really understands yet. Still, um, 
So anyway, it's been successful, and um, we've had um, students and teachers from all over the world um, join and participate, and they've um, they've done stuff like created translation plugins for the kids that don't speak English, and um, yeah, set challenges I that about that particular factor about how it bridges into other literacies. Uh, one of the things I asked the kids was, well, how did you learn all this stuff? Because you know, we sat down and this eight-year-old girl, within like six minutes of our first test, had already built this circular structure with a conical roof, and, and it was pretty amazing stuff. And yeah. you know, they, they, well, they tinker around, they ask a friend, they, they go on and they read the wikis, they look on YouTube for specific problems, and all of this yeah. bringing into other um, skill sets. Um, yeah. And you know, it seems to be like this incentivizer where they can bypass all obstacles in, in literacy. I'm thinking of a Clive Thompson article in Wired a few months ago um, that talked about like all of this other learning that happens around the game. And, and this for an educator, of course, is like a goldmine. Like this is what we want to tap into. But at the same time, I'm thinking about what, what you just said about are, are we corrupting it or will we ruin it by trying to appropriate it for our own uses of pushing our own content and our, our own program. Yeah, I think trying to use things. You can. I think you can do it well, and there's examples out there of people who do do it well. Um, but I think that there's a lot of people that don't do it well, and um, and do corrupt it and structure it. Um, I think the biggest risk is when you're a teacher who's, uh, and it's a bit of a tragedy really, because there's teachers who just really want to utilize this amazing platform for um, learning. But then they go in with the old model of being the teacher as the focal point of the learning experience. They might use Minecraft EDU and they don't really understand much about Minecraft. So it becomes this really stilted sort of artificial process. Hmm. Whereas when you see kids in Minecraft, it's uh, it's not linear at, at all. And it's, um, it's quite chaotic and amazing and um, in terms of this learning around it, like uh, I've heard stories of kids learning to read um, just so that they could navigate Minecraft. Um, um, like it's, it's, it's kind of amazing. Uh, but there's also a lot of um, really low level stuff in Minecraft. It's like, it's like any tool or platform. It's kind of how it's utilized. And I think the real opportunity for educators is to put those cool ideas out there of what if, what if we built a working computer in Minecraft? What would we have to do to, to what do we have to learn to do that? Um, yeah, sure, make a sports stadium, but um, but what would we have to do to make a working um, you know billboard um, um, scoreboard? Uh, I think they're the, they're the kind of things that that then inspire higher levels of of learning, um, and the kids then have to get into redstone. Um, uh, you know, for the computers, they've got to learn how to do logic gates. So there's um, there's a lot of higher order stuff in there. Um, but yeah, I've kind of got the hippie approach at the moment. I'm I'm going really hands off, and and it's kind of interesting because mine class at the moment is at a point where a lot of people are really keen on um, joining, and so we had this conundrum of, okay, we've had this community, a core community of students that have been running it, and 
I sort of extricated myself completely just to kind of see what would happen. And I've been busy, obviously, with a new job. And we wanted people to start coming through. The, the goal was originally that the kids would come up with the tasks um, or the challenges and be that making something or, or, or working in a team. And if these things were awesome enough, then other students could come through in like a, as an excursion, a virtual excursion. And so when, that, when, you, when you think of it in that way, um, the kids immediately needed a way of protecting their amazing creations. So there might be like a noob that comes in, doesn't know anything, and plants lava all around it or you know, just destroys it. So then it, it began to evolve. And so what happened was um, the students devised these levels of permissioning um, uh, so that you could have certain access at different levels. And when you entered, you came in as a Padawan, they used the, like the Jedi terminology, which I was really pleased with. Um, and then you'd, you'd move on to a Jedi status, Jedi Master, Grand Jedi Master, I think is the top level now. But they actually coded this so that if you came in as a Padawan, you couldn't wreck anything. You could still play, you could still create stuff, but you couldn't wreck any of the other like really cool, elaborate structures that were had been built. Um, so what that enabled was People could then enter on mass, which is about to happen. I think. I think whole schools are now planning on coming through to sort of experience this. Um, but the, yeah, but what what I thought was interesting was that they, the students did this on their own. But then there's also the next level of this is well ownership. So I've had this core group of students that have been running it, but I, but mine class isn't theirs either, so it, it belongs to everyone. So then there's this process of learning of how to let go and how to um, how to how to pass the torch to someone else. And um, you know, this seems to touch on like the old school, um, you know, kind of Dungeons and Dragons type gaming environment where there's no set narrative, and then there's the the guiding dungeon master who like creates the narrative for the players, and then you have the World of Warcraft aspects of Every player has to know the attributes and skill sets of every, every other player. In these collaborative environments, do you front load a lot of the collaboration? Like, do you, I mean, for projects and things, do you just let all of that self-organize, or or strategically kind of pit them into positions of collaboration? Uh, so we've 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 done both. So in the early stages, um, I sort of picked the initial team, and it was actually. Through the students I was working with in my technology class. So I was working um, teaching technology in um, the high school I was working at, and there was um, a, a particular student, Melissa, who actually had been running Minecraft servers for years. It was actually her thing, right? So I was just I lucked out with Melissa because um, she knew what she was doing. So I kind of put her in the position of admin, so to speak. And then uh, other students in my class that were Minecraft people uh, started um, filling particular roles, such as you know managing communications, managing the database. Um, it kind of self-organized. And then I realized that I didn't want to structure it too much, and I wanted to see how they would structure it. So it seems now the focus of Minecraft, my class is um, they set these tasks. See the student, the new students come in. They can see the the different challenges they call them, 
and um, to complete a challenge you have to do it in a group. So the students have to find people to work with. They're not assigned other people to work with. They have to just find people with certain skill sets to do this because to make uh, a lighthouse, like a working, functioning lighthouse, you've got to have someone who has a sense of scale, but you also need someone who knows how to use redstone to make the light work. And um, maybe someone who really likes lighthouses. Um, so, so I think that it's kind of it's organically just grown. And like on the website, when I first made the website, um, mindclass.org, which now the students run, by the way, as well. I've given them ownership of that. Um, we called it an experiment in awesomeness. So, this has consciously been a bit of an organic process. And the the thing I was most interested in was what kind of challenges they'd set. Um, I threw some original ones out there, like working computers, calculators, stuff that I knew would direct them towards the higher order computational thinking kind of stuff. Um, but then I kind of thought, no, that's even that's forcing it a bit, and I just see where they go with it. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of interesting. At the moment in mine class, they've got the challenge world. So when you when you enter it at the spawn point, you're in a bit of a dungeon and there's uh, portals, the purple portals. One takes you through to the challenge world, one takes you through to the free world, right? So um, the free world is more of like your standard collaborative Minecraft, like Wonderland, right? Where the kids just show off all the amazing things they can do and there's pirate ships flying through the sky and stuff like that. The challenge world is more structured where you enter into a, a zone and it comes up with instructions on what the challenge is, how long you've got to, to do it. Um, the and level of structure... Yeah. Those challenges or, or are the kids the designers of the challenges? The kids. The kids do all the challenges. I've, I've given them some feedback on um, um, certain challenges, whether if I like them or how they worked because um, I'd have no chance of completing them on my own. Um, and that, like, let's say how long do you give them for like completion of a, of a challenge? Like, do you set a time limit or how do they do that? Yeah, they, they set the time limit um, of a week. So they, they've given the groups, they have to complete it as a group and the students have a week to complete it. That's their current time frame. But they did that. I didn't, I didn't set the parameters for that. Um, so, so yeah, that's the challenge world. And the other thing that's kind of awesome is they've created like uh, notices that pop up, um, that reminders on only two days till the till the challenge is due, or uh, remember everything's logged. So if you go and do some griefing, you know we're going to know about it. Um, it's just it's actually really structured. It's it's a highly structured environment that I had nothing to do with. Um, so it's kind of awesome and um, and interesting now because now I've got the teachers that are super keen to come in again and we're actually trying to figure out what our place is in this. Like if, if we really want to target certain uh, key learning areas or core competencies, how would that fit? And maybe we would have to ask the, the Jedi Masters for... Um, you know, for some consultation to give us advice on how we could structure that. I think that would be more valuable than us trying to impose our sort of clunky thinking into their into their world.
Yeah, I, I'm um, real interested in this concept of, of how gaming culture is, is evolving, how it, it's becoming non-narrative, where you know, the kids get in Minecraft and they have, basically have to kind of invent their own narrative about the game. And now you know, you're talking about there's actually people designing kind of the narrative for other players coming in. And yeah. I'm interested in like what this can teach us about our own our own teaching culture as well. Like how how do we take these gamified aspects and put mm. them into our normal classroom? You know? uh, well, you, you know, there's lots of people doing that with um, yeah, open badges and um, yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I I don't know. I'm I don't know if I'm sold on the whole gamification thing. To be honest, I think. Um, um, I just yeah I, I've tried it I've tried different elements of gamifying things and I've got colleagues that have done a really good job like they've actually structured amazing learning adventures because um, they've obviously got way too much time on their hands um, that the kids participate in which is kind of awesome um, Rob at my last school he um, they were studying a novel and he got the students to recreate the, the entire world of the novel in Minecraft and then they co-created with the teacher the different chapters of the book that was then like like the old D&D &D story like you'd have to like work your way through the different rooms and things would happen and stuff and that was kind of awesome but the, the best thing about that was they blogged about it and the um, the author of the the book got in contact with them because she was kind of amazed that they'd recreated her, her novel in Minecraft. And so then she came and visited the school and met them in person and that was kind of this amazing real world audience kind of feeding back. It was just, yeah, that was cool. Um, and that was from Gamifying Learning. Um, wow. I think that uh, what I really like is, um, I think the potential is, I'm tangenting here, but um, uh, some of the new, learn I, I hate to use the term learning management system because it's got so much writing on those words, but but uh, the learning systems that are intelligent and um, and uh, and networked, I think that's sort of where we're going with stuff. I think um, teachers trying to gamify stuff too much, I just, yeah, I don't know if it works. I've, so I know people do it really well, um, but I think that uh, why don't we just use the platforms that we've already got, um, like Minecraft, and and maybe not try and impose our own thinking, old thinking on that, um, but see what the new possibilities are. You know, like the um, the SAMA model. You know, um, uh, substitution. Rah, rah, rah. Um, well, I think that redefinition really comes in with Minecraft, and um, so it's just being open to the new possibilities of that, and. Yeah, and but yeah, how does that fit with curriculum? I don't know. Um, do you want to assess it? I don't know if you want to assess it. I suppose I think to to be really, I'm obviously I'm getting tired now because I'm making really generalized statements. But um, I think students are already self-directing their learning now, whether we want to accept it or not as educators. And um, I think that we really kind of need to start co-creating knowledge with students rather than thinking that we, we are the ones that structure it. Um, I think we need to be guides, you know, rather than um, gatekeepers. Mm. Hey Chris, uh, if you think about it, it, it is really all about what Matt 
said a little uh, time ago, and it's, you know, you got to get in there and create the whole experience with them. You cannot pretend like you know everything about the game or, you know, for any given matter, any activity you're trying to do, but you're not, you know, the center of the power in the classroom. you got to, you know, get in there with them and, and build something. Um, I kind of have to get going, so I kind of uh, wanted to leave you, Matt, with, with a final question from my side. Um, as far as the maker spaces uh, go, what do you think, uh, like, in general terms, what do you recommend? Like, what do you have to have for, a, for an okay maker space or, you know, for something that really is, uh, maybe like you said before, disruptive or, you know, creative and that has, you know, potential? Um, yeah, there's, um, that's kind of like, uh, how long is a piece of string kind of question because there's a, there's a million different ways you can do makerspace, but I can tell you how I did it and that might not fit your context, but it might help inform your process. Um, I, I wanted a makerspace to be a student owned space. So I, I was the manager of the, what we used to call the library, right? And upstairs was where my office was, and I was also the head of IT, which was kind of awesome, because if you're the e-learning person and the IT person, then you don't have any blocks. You can just do whatever you want. Right? So, um, so, and actually, it's a bit of a good story, because I didn't even really ask for permission to do this. I just did it in a holiday break, and I knocked all the walls down upstairs, and I made this makerspace in, um, in the holidays. And um, just repurposed furniture that we had, um, got some gear in there. We didn't have much money at that point, but I'll tell you about the gear. Um, and then, but made it student-owned. So I got the students to, to do graffiti murals on the walls and um, put up their, print out their favorite kind of people and um, they felt like it was theirs, right? So it was a learning commons. It was a place where they could go in a highly structured school environment that wasn't so structured. So I let it, I opened it up before school, after school, lunch and recess, um, and kids were skipping class. Obviously, I didn't know that at the time. And, um, and we're doing these amazing projects um, that we're linking to all different key learning areas. So they're coming from this siloed education of, you know, mathematics, English, and then they're going to a place where everything was linked and was kind of exciting. And there were kids from uh, kindergarten all the way to year 12 working in the same zone. Like that hardly ever happens in the, the standard educational model. And even better than that, we had kids in year 4 teaching kids in year 12 how to use technology and stuff, which was kind of awesome as well. Um, but the, the key thing we had in our makerspace was um, hacking and taking things apart and, and learning how things work. So to start with, if you've got no money, bring in old computers and take them apart because anyone can do that, right? Um, then when we started to get a bit of cash, we'd find stuff that was really um, uh, cost-effective, shall we say. So makey-makeys, um, little electronic kits that you could just clip onto bananas to make electronic pianos. I was doing that today in the lab, actually. We were making electro, customized electro instruments with, you know, $20 makey-makey kits. Or actually the ones from China, so fakey-fakey kits. Um, 
and then we got it. We had a little bit more money we appropriated towards this. So we had obviously a three D printer, um, and then that's when the stuff it, it really started to accelerate because um, this whole upcycling kind of process happened in the makerspace. So a great example that I always tell about this is. Uh, we bought Chromebooks. We were one of, I think, we were actually the first school in Australia to get Chromebooks, and um, we used them to death, like literally. And so after, after about a year, we had about uh, 15 dead Chromebooks. The screens didn't work, and so part of our makerspace is we take things apart. So we'd taken the Chromebooks apart, and so we had 15. Chromebook motherboards that were perfect, but they just didn't have the peripherals to, to work. And so Thomas, who is in year five, on uh, Google SketchUp, designed a new case for these motherboards, like a think like a net top case, and then he 3D printed it, and in two halves with all the right ins and out holes, right? And then he put the motherboard in the case, glued them together, stuck it on the back of an old monitor. He called it the Thomas box, by the way, right? It was his own box. And in effect, upcycled a Chromebook motherboard to be a working computer again. So that that's innovation. Like that's that's cool. So that's the kind of thing I would suggest for your makerspace is think of things that have immediate effect and a, a genuinely student generated. So I didn't tell him to do that. He just came up with that on his own. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of thing I'd say to do in your makerspace, as well as get a bit of emerging tech. Like I'm a big fan of Kickstarter and Indiegogo, and I've kind of been lucky to back the right things. But like we had the first Oculus Rift, the D, DK1 development kit one, when it first came out. And so we had kids um, uh, doing Sphero pictures of of the the makerspace before it was the makerspace actually stitching them together um, in Unity 3D and then being in a virtual representation of the classroom with the Oculus Rift um, <laughs> like like that's that's cool like that I think doing stuff that no one's done before um, uh, the other thing the other good uh, thing that some of my students do was um, with the Oculus or VR is they they coded in um, in Unity and uh, created in Unity in Blender um, a first-person shooter for the Oculus Rift. So they actually made a game and released it. So it's not it's not when they're developers or, or when they're um, you know they're, they're doing it. So I think that that's the that's the potential we have now is it's not uh, I'm learning to be um, an architect as I am. Um, I think that's the potential now, is that we have these real-world projects that we work on. So that, that another great example is that open ROV. I was talking about the underwater um, exploration robot. Um, they have HD cameras on them with um, LED lights, mm. and they, they record, right? So it goes down, you record what you're doing. But then the kids share that, not just kids, everyone, shares it on Open Explorer, so the whole world is seeing these open source robots, their explorations. They're all being networked and shared. So the interwebs is, um, yeah, is amazing. But anyway, sorry, um, Diego, for tangenting off there. But I hope that helps. I, and good luck with your makerspace. I, I've got friends actually that just set up a little table at the back of their room 
Um, in fact, my e-learning integrator back at the school I've left, she's got a whole makerspace in a in a travel uh, suitcase now that she just wheels into a room. It's like a pop-up. Uh, she does it that way. Um, I'm really excited by Maker Maker Ed. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, awesome. I was actually thinking about that. Like, just get uh, you know, a couple of uh, makey makeys in a table, and that's it. Get going. <laughs> yeah, but, you just know, do it. Like, yeah, like you said, it's it's all in the potential that technology has right now. Not just technology, but the whole STEM you know initiative. And I don't know if you've seen, but I'm a big fan of uh, Adam Savage from the MythBusters. Yeah. And they got a, a site called Tested.com a couple of years ago, and they did like all sorts of these stuff, like they build, you know, scale models and they, they build tech stuff and, you know, replicas of, I don't know, movie props or whatever. And it's all about this, just to, you know, enhance enhancing potential of and the creative potential of technology and integrating all these, you know, arts movement and science and tech, which is, I, I really think it's really awesome. So, uh, thanks for that, Matt. And, and yeah, Adam Savage, if you're watching this, we'll try to touch base with you, one of these <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, I, I got to get going. So, Matt, it was awesome. Right. It's been awesome uh, talking cool. to you. So, I'll let you have go with Chris. Chris, I got to go. I'll see you guys later. Thanks, Matt, again for cool. being with have us a, today. Have a good day, Diego. See you, mate. You too. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> we have classes starting here in a few minutes, but I'd, I'd love to close with one, one question that you touched upon earlier. And it was kind of like this learning environment, but not just the learning environment of the future, the, the teaching skill set of the future and yeah. kind of where, where that's going and how a lot of this, what we learn from all of this makerspace culture will carry over and bridge into the classroom. Um, mm. How do you see that evolving? Um, I see that it won't be a classroom anymore. I think that's the old model. So I think that... Um, it's going to, well, it's my, my pie in the sky ideal learning future is there are no classrooms. Um, it's learning that just happens in the world and we can help uh, inspire that learning, facilitate that learning. Um, and, um, and it should be linked, it should be real world things. So, um, uh, one of the great things about New Zealand um, is. They've actually got a really awesome education system. Well, compared to Australia, they do anyway. And um, um, you know, there's some great stuff in Australia too. But but I've got a uh, my eldest daughter, Lila. She's five. And when we when they arrived here uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had to find a school for her. And the public schools over here are actually awesome. And the little one she's going to is student centric. There's no walls in the building that she's in. Um, uh, the kids working like little cohorts, um, very colourful. There's a there's a lot of connections with the community. Uh, parents are really encouraged to participate. So I think it's happening. I think that this this um, evolution of school from it being or learning environments from being these closed organisations where where we have a little cell. With a with an educator and you know the learners, I think that those days are almost over, and um, and I'm kind of excited about where we're going. I think the the Horizon Report, the NMC Horizon Report uh, from last year, 
uh, mentioned that I think it was this year was the tipping point for educated change, the redefinition of what we are as, as educators or learners would be a better way to put it. Um, I think we're just all learning together and um, once we realise that we can learn as much from the students as they can from us, then maybe this, the whole process will accelerate. But it seems like it would take enough of these schools that are doing innovative things or opening walls to outshine the sort of standard traditional, this is what has always worked, this is what we've always done. All of our kids go to Ivy League schools and they always have. Um, you know, like, won't that take longer than you're thinking? Like, like to me, it seems like it, you'd have to have another set of schools on the side doing it so much better, outshining the other schools so much better. But well, actually, I saw this is interesting because I saw something uh, on the networks recently about, um, and this is from the States, um, where there was thousands of students that were rebelling against high stakes testing. Did you see that? Um, I think it's happening now, and I think that it's actually coming from the students, and I think it's happening faster than we like to admit. And um, and like I said before, students are already self-directing their learning now. It's just whether we want to get get with the party, and um, and I think that um, this change is exponential, and um, the interwebs isn't going away, and um, the the the, the rapid changes that are happening in, in education now are just going to continue, particularly with AI. This is the other factor thing we haven't even spoken about yet. So learning management systems that, that utilize um, AI and smart, smart systems. That'll free up teachers to be the relationship experts that I think that we sort of are now. Um, I think that a key component of being a a, a, a learning leader is um, is that we know how to 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 work in groups. We know how to facilitate collaboration. We're we're relationship people, right? Because we don't have to be content experts anymore. That we've got the interwebs for that, and we've got if we're learning about volcanoes, then we we do a Google Hangout with a volcanologist, right? I don't need to know about volcanoes, but what I need to know is how to how to connect with that. Um, volcanologist if the kids don't know um, and how to maybe inspire little Johnny if he needs to know about volcanoes where to find the information so anyway I think with these with these AI learning systems that are coming through um, that'll free up teachers to do that and like you would understand it's hard enough for one teacher to teach the same thing to 30 students right um, let alone differentiated learning paths where you've got 30 students all learning 30 different things concurrently. Good luck with that, trying to manage that as the focal point of that learning environment. That, I don't think that's our role. So I think that these different forms of assessment, uh, I, I really think technology is helping us. Um, and I've actually got friends, developers in Sydney who are working on really cool um, uh, systems at the moment that do that and that have this whole gamification sort of built in as well. So that, you know, it's learning at your own pace when you want to learn. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, I know we've kind of gone everywhere with this talk, but I've really enjoyed myself, Chris. That was awesome. <laughs> hey, thanks for staying up. I must be almost midnight over there now. Uh, we're about to start here and uh, we'll, we'll publish this course immediately, but then we'll process a more formal podcast with it within the month as well. 
Um, cool. And I'm really looking forward to following up on some of your other projects and progress in the in the Mind Lab. Yeah, you should, mate. Um, I'm pretty lax with my blog, but yeah, um, um, mattrichards.info is where I eventually post stuff. Um, and yeah, yeah, keep up with the Mind Lab. We should be doing some cool stuff. Um, and enjoy your day. Okay. Hey, thanks a lot. Cool, man. Take care, man. See you, mate. Go. So that closes up our podcast for today. Um, this summer, like we said, it's gonna it's looking pretty busy. Do you want to do that again? <laughs> no, let's keep it rolling. I think the more mistakes in here, okay. the more authentic <laughs> it is. So, okay, tomorrow morning I'm taking off from Bogota. We'll be in Philadelphia. Um, I'll be podcasting right and left wherever I can find people in hallways. I'll be walking around with a mic. Um, I've got certain themes we're looking at. One is uh, collaborative models within schools, how to foster collaboration from your admin to your teachers to your your student organized learning environments. So wh where in Philadelphia can we find you? Where will you be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know that yet. Um, so I'm not sure whose floor I'm crashing on, but I, I will be there for most of the conference. Um, so look for me on Twitter at Chris Davis CNG. And you can always find us here through Journeys in Podcasting. We have a Facebook page and we're pretty responsive to any emails sent through there. And where will you be? I'll be in New York City, it's Village. I'm fine next week. I'll be there on Tuesday afternoon, hopefully, trying to catch a cab from La Guardia to my flower <laughs> Miami. So we'll, we'll catch up. Natalia Leon, who is the one of the inventors of this project, she'll be leaving our school next year, but we're definitely going to be uh, tapping into her resources. She is was invited to become an Apple Distinguished Educator. And so we'll be... So she'll definitely be in... Wherever that's going to happen, I think somewhere down in Florida, Miami or something like that, she'll be in there and then for we'll, like two weeks in that train. Well, I'll be back here in, in Bogota come August, and in September we're planning the first EdCamp Bogota. Uh, we're learning as much as we can about that process, and we don't even have the date set yet, but over the summer we will start publicizing that as well. So hopefully before that happens, we'll be having a podcast on EdCamps and unconference models and innovative collaboration models and all that <laughs> so when i say philadelphia i do mean that i'll be there for isti i won't just be wandering around liberty bell trying to accost people on the streets <laughs> but i'll be in the hallways of, of isti uh probably around the wherever the bloggers set up and so look for me there and if anyone has any great ideas for podcasts please join us we're always looking for different ways to make this uh, productive model. Each one is a different prototype, and we're trying to get better with each iteration. So you can find us, Journeys in Podcasting. We have the Twitter handle at ChrisAvisCNG, is that yours? And then at techie underscore boy. You can follow at Miss Natty Leon as well. Who's supposed to be here, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Happy summer. Have a great summer, everybody.